Hey, podcast listeners. You listen to this show after it's been recorded each week. Well, why not get an extra bonus and listen to it while it's actually being recorded and get some questions in yourself? The Energy Gang is going to be hosting its first live event in Washington, D.C. at MDVC's Solar Focus Conference. We'll be capping the conference on the evening of November 12th with a lively discussion about the future of solar on the East Coast. For more information, go to mdvcia.org slash solarfocus2013. We'll also have a link on the podcast page. Hope you can join us for our first live show. For the week of October 18th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. From Washington, I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. As usual, the gang is assembled here in Washington and New York City. Catherine Hamilton, the founder of 38 North Solutions, is in D.C. Hey, Catherine, how are you? Yeah, we're back in business here, and I'm counting, absolutely counting on the Senate and House coming to agreement on some really great energy legislation. Yeah, like Shaheen Portman, maybe? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Look, they just got done opening the government, so yeah, yeah. got to give them a couple of days. Yeah, it doesn't sound like uh, Shaheen Portman will be much of a priority. Also behind the microphone this week, the ever-opinionated Jigger Shaw. Jigger, what's happening in New York City with you? Well, you guys in D.C. make Bombastic seem nice. <laughs> well, it's not us in D.C. It's <laughs> no, it's true. You know, there was a great op-ed in um, the Washington Post that said, our town is not this town off that book, saying like D.C. is an actual town. It's like not just the government. It's also other wonderful people. Yeah, that's right. And we were actually just talking before we started recording that uh, something around 90 percent of recent job growth in D.C. has been outside the government. Exactly. I was very happy because, you know, Sun Edison was started in D.C. Big, big uh, tech scene here in D.C. A lot of things that people don't realize when they look at Washington. Well, speaking of technology and investment and job growth, we are going to look at clean tech investment trends in the first part of the show. Uh, some mixed news. Overall, global investment looks like it's going to fall for the second year in a row. And the appetite within the venture capital community within clean tech is also changing. So we'll ask what the implications are for those shifts. Then we'll dig into some M&A activity. SolarCity recently bought the racking company Zep Solar. And we will ask what it means for consolidation in downstream solar. Finally, from Boulder, Colorado to Hamburg, Germany, efforts to municipalize the grid are expanding. At the same time, we're now starting to see microgrids make some progress. What will these two forces do for energy localization? And at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. Okay, on to the picture for global clean tech investment. Let's start off with a pop quiz. Who can tell me the sector that has seen the most interest from venture capitalists in the last year? Catherine, what's your answer? Energy efficiency. Jigger? Agriculture. Agriculture is one that is gaining a lot of steam, but energy efficiency uh, topped the list in the Global Clean Tech 100 report that just came out. So actually, to be fair, those results are not actual dollar figures, but they do, they do mirror shifts in the amount invested. Uh, they come from the ranking of the hottest uh, clean tech companies, um, which is this list of top startups procured by dozens of venture capitalists watching the space. And again, that's the Global Clean Tech 100 list. It's kind of an indicator of where VCs are interested in putting their money. Uh, in the past, solar has played a huge role in this list. Uh, and early on, it was manufacturers, 
But this year, energy efficiency companies accounted for more than a quarter of the list, while there were only six solar firms, most of them downstream companies. Yeah, huge push up in energy efficiency companies, in, in capital light companies. That's been the biggest sort of uh, you know, gain in terms of sectors. And then solar has been by far the, 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 the sector that's been hurt the most. That is Shiraz Haji, CEO of the Cleantech Group, the organization that writes and procures the report. He and I chatted for a little bit last week about what the rankings mean for investor appetite. I think that is an illustration of something we've been discussing, which is a real shift away from capital-intensive upstream solar towards, hey, clean web, capital-efficient, software, cloud-type type deals. So this is another illustration of the next wave of clean tech investment, which we talked about with Rob Day a few weeks ago. Of course, there's a potential downside to this shift toward capital light strategies. It ignores the fact that energy is an infrastructure business and often requires big capital investments. I think I think there's a risk that we may be overdoing it, Stephen. I think I think there's been a huge push towards whether we call it clean web or capital efficient and I think the worry that I have is sometimes just a beautiful dashboard doesn't solve much of a problem. You know, I think one area that I, I know you've written about is in, in, in the building space, you know, we have seen a lot of really fancy dashboards. And some of these dashboard companies raised, you know, lots of capital and struggled because they couldn't fundamentally get data out of the building effectively. So, um, I think we have to be quite careful to not overcorrect. And, you know, the, 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 the world of, of clean tech is actually still fundamental around, you know, hard things. There's there energy to, to be produced. There's, you know, water to be treated. Um, so I think we need to not uh, forget that there are big companies that perhaps have hit some headwinds. You know, Bright Source is a company that comes to mind that is – building a massive power plant in the desert. It's coming online. It's pretty transformative, yet I think it's quite easy in our rush to go focus on the capital light to just dismiss some of these companies. Some of these companies, by the way, that have built hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and are growing quite fast. So there we have it, another snapshot of what's going on in venture capital. Um, In addition to that, Bloomberg New Energy Finance reported this week that global investments in clean energy are set to fall for the second year in a row. So what's going on here? What does this shift mean? And should we be worried? Jigar Shah, what do you make of these two reports? Look, you know, I think when you read the the Cleantech uh, 100 report, what's really interesting in it is that they actually – highlight for the first time their shift to business model innovation away from technology innovation, which I think is awesome since that's what my new book is about. Um, But I also thought was really cool is that they actually had, um, you know, beyond meat in the, in the report, which means that they actually think that this whole notion of figuring out how we actually take our largest carbon footprint in our diets or in our lives, which is actually the meat that we eat, you know, out of the, the carbon footprints, um, you know, one of the areas people are noticing these days. Yeah, well, that's a, an interesting shift as well. We start to see the broadening of the clean tech profile. And I know that you would probably argue that agriculture and maybe this Beyond Meat company is a clean tech company. Uh, some at the Global Clean Tech 100 conference argued that the clean tech industry or venture capitalists like to proclaim things are clean tech when it suits their interests and they see successes, but then 
tend to push them aside and not call them clean tech when it doesn't uh, show any success. Uh, do you agree with that? I mean, what do you see in terms of the categories broadening? Yeah, look, I think the word clean tech has been marred because when people say I invest in clean tech, they think venture capital when the vast majority of money in the clean tech movement actually goes into project finance. So the word clean tech has sort of been marred by the low returns in the VC space. So I see how people go in and out of them. But, you know, when you think about agriculture, one of the largest sources of carbon in the world is deforestation. And one of the largest drivers of deforestation is beef production in Brazil. So, yeah, that's a great point. This seems like what we're pointing to is less about widgets and what is the best widget to invest in and much more about systems, which then becomes much more complicated and and then brings in things like water and waste management and agriculture into the mix because these are all systems that still touch on energy and clean tech. Yeah, absolutely. What do you make of the drop-off in storage companies on this list, Catherine? Uh, storage has played a fairly big role in this list as well, and that's a, a similar decline to solar. Do you make anything of that since you follow the storage space pretty closely? Oh, no. I actually think storage is really bullish. I'm glad to see the companies that are on here, especially Ambry, which is a really interesting company. Um, but I think, no, I think... I think investment in storage is now shifting from the VC side to large developers, utilities, um, folks like AES Energy Storage, Duke, and Xterra. Those folks are all continuing to invest. Uh, I think that that space is really growing. And that actually goes back to the services picture that you painted. A lot of the storage companies are getting out of technology development because of issues in uh, materials design um, and, and cost reductions and and the amount of capital required to build out manufacturing facilities and getting into platforms to manage storage itself. Can yeah, you know, I mean, a, we, sorry. A lot of the systems are. I mean, they work fine. The technology works. It, it really is about how do you value it, and that and that speaks more to the policy side. Yeah, we just did a um, you know a battery storage as a service deal with STEM last week. So for anyone who doesn't know, STEM is uh, storage on the customer side of the meter. What, what did you do there? So they have a number of contracts with customers in California that pay usurious demand charges. And uh, they install these, these storage units in their building and shave that peak demand off. So they're saving like $23 a kilowatt for the customer. And uh, the customer shares some of those savings back to STEM and um, that's how we get our rate of return. So it's a you know pretty interesting model, um, and and th that doesn't even include the revenues that they might get in the future from the independent system operator. California just unanimously approved the CPC a 1.3 gigawatt target for energy storage. So that's just going to help STEM and those others who are who are putting out the systems. Yeah, we were also following this company Demand Energy, which provides a very similar service to STEM. And uh, they unfortunately had some investors that pulled back and they've had to lay off their staff. And it sounds like this once promising company that even just a few months ago was um, inking some new deals is now on hiatus. And it didn't sound like it was a technology problem. It was one of their financiers who, who dropped off. And so we see some movement in this space. But going back to the changes in the investment climate, certainly some hiccups for some of these companies. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that, and I, you know, I've talked about this a lot, is that, uh, that getting money is an art. It's not a science, right? This notion that my technology or my 
uh, company is better than everyone else's company, therefore you should fund me, often doesn't work. I mean, the people who get funded are people who actually know how to play the game and who actually realize that it's a game and play it properly, um, as opposed to those who just wait till they run out of money before they go out and raise more. Uh, let's go into the second report from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which showed um, clean energy investment falling 14% in the third quarter of this year, uh, which, as BNEF reported, makes it almost certain that annual investment in renewables uh, and other clean energy technologies are going to fall. What do you make of that one, Jigger? Well, you know, I actually had drinks with Stefan um, Linder uh, yesterday, and he pointed out to me, which is what he pointed out to me last year when this happened, that we're going to hit all-time highs and all-time growth rates in the total number of megawatts that we're deploying. Um, so there hasn't been any drop-off in terms of deployment of clean tech. It's just that we got too cheap too fast. I mean, it's extraordinary. We can't win for the life of us. Well, uh, that's really interesting because what folks in the press aren't really talking about is that the cost curves have come down. So while that deployment has increased, total investment levels um, have fallen as well. Um, interestingly, what you see is that still this continued surge in distributed PV systems under one megawatt. And uh, again, because those uh, typically cost less, uh, you see that relative decrease in investment. But still, when you look at IEA projections for what we need to develop over the next decade to reach a two degree centigrade uh, temperature stabilization, it, we are just really still not on a path of investment. And we need to see overall investments continue to increase, even if the cost of systems is declining. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, when you think about creating climate wealth and, you know, and some of these trends that we need to reach, it the thing that I think is interesting is that, you know, the Severn Bernstein did a report recently showing that we're going to hit peak coal globally, which has been, you know, one of the big things the tractors are talking about. So China's going to um, put a cap on total coal usage in 2015, and so is India. Um, India mostly just because they just don't have the fresh water supply to do this. So you're seeing a lot of renewable energy growth in these areas. I think where, and when I talked to Stefan, he said actually there's way more money available today than there was last year. And so we actually are having a net growth in money that the real reason why we had a drop off in in uh, investment was because of a lack of deal flow efficiently making its way to the money. And so that's where you're seeing like true solar, you're seeing the SAPSI forum within the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and others trying to create this level of standardization that's going to allow for a lot more of the projects developers are developing to get successfully to the investors to make the investments. It just goes to show you that there's always a lot more complicated story behind those numbers. So we'll continue to talk about those. Let's move on to our second topic. So it's clear that investment in solar is flowing from manufacturing to downstream installation and hardware. Um, let's dig a bit deeper into that and look at a specific acquisition that I think illustrates the churn underway in solar services. Um, solar City. One of the leading solar services companies just spent $158 million to acquire the innovative racking company Zep Solar. That's a firm that uses a rail-free mounting system uh, that can drastically cut installation time. You know, you can take an installation from a couple of days to a day, if not hours. Uh, Zep makes up about 30% of the residential racking market this year. 
Um, so this is SolarCity's second acquisition this year. In September, it bought up the customer acquisition firm Paramount Solar for $120 million. Jigger, I want to start with you again on this one since solar services are kind of your bread and butter. What's going on here? Are we going to see a lot more M&A activity to come in the solar services space? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you have highly inflated stock, you know, at Solar City, um, and their their stock is so inflated, it's like, why not buy growth? The highly cost- inflated, why? Well, when you look at a company like Solar City that's done maybe a hundred thousand homes total, two point seven billion is a pretty high valuation. Um, and so my sense is is that people are looking at future growth from Solar City, and the growth rates are just not there. It's very hard to get customers, et cetera. So they're growing through acquisition because their stock price is so high. It's actually worth buying these guys. On the ZEP side, you know, the thing is is that racking has always been a huge problem for installers. Um, it's one of those frustrating areas where. Um, you don't really get a lot of cost reduction, and the margins are are very high for the racking folks. And so you see Unirack and PowerClaw and all these guys. And so Solar City, I think, made that move just to you know it was the easiest way to save a bunch of money on um, their cost of goods sold. But I frankly am always anti these um, vertically integration vertical integration models. I don't I don't care for them. Well, why Why is that? Because ultimately, we need innovation in each of the categories, right? As soon as Solar City buys well, Zep, who's to say that a company like Solar City can't innovate here, and Zep will still operate as a somewhat independent entity? I don't know. I've never seen it. Look at look at SunPower. As soon as SunPower bought um, PowerLight, all of their innovation on the commercial side went away. They were a fast follower, but no longer innovative. The same thing's true with like Rack, and you know when they went in module manufacturing. Look at all the Chinese guys who bought downstream companies. None of them have have um, you know like innovated after they bought their companies. When it, whether it's energy innovations or even recurrent energy. I mean, Sharp has really done nothing with that. So what you find is is that it's very hard for a company, particularly one as young as Solar City, to be best in class in lead generation engineering, installation, figuring out innovations on the finance side, now adding the innovations on the uh, the structures and the, and the uh, racking side. It's tough to see. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like if you are – what they're doing is increasing their productivity and efficiency and hopefully lowering their cost. So I would – I think that's all part of their package that they offer. It's all part of this service package that they offer, and that is the innovation that, that ZEP brings to them. Yeah, that's right. And we put out a, a report recently on customer acquisition costs, and those those costs are like ten percent of an over overall residential system. Um, you know, they can be about forty nine cents per watt just to acquire a customer. And we kind of crunched the numbers and looked at uh, what the solar industry, the residential solar industry, would spend um, by two thousand sixteen, and it's going to spend just about a billion dollars uh, to acquire you know, around 4 million leads just to achieve the forecast of 360,000 residential installations that we see happening. So there's a lot of room for innovation there. And I think that Solar City's acquisition of Paramount can give it a lot of leverage. And I also disagree with you about vertical integration in the residential side too, Jigger, because I think what we see here is that these solar companies providing uh, solar leases and PPAs now have a new relationship 
with residential customers. They have a 15, 20-year relationship now. They can track the production of a solar system on a home. Uh, an organization like Solar City now has detailed energy modeling of energy consumption within the home when it comes to appliances, um, performance of windows and insulation, and they're using that to create a one-click tool to call on contractors. You see a company like Sunrun partnering with Nest and, and trying to do some interesting promotions around smart thermostats. So what I see here is that solar services companies have a new relationship with customers, and they can start adding on all these new services that can effectively do what the utility hasn't been able to do. And so I think vertical integration could potentially accelerate that. Hey, what about this, uh, what IKEA is offering in the UK, where they're selling solar panels at IKEA, which I find really interesting? Yeah, no, look, I think that, you know, getting more channels to market of getting solar out, which is what IKEA is doing, is really interesting. But, you know, the thing with the vertical integration piece, Stephen, is that you know, obviously, I'd love to be proven wrong. I really like Linden, and I really think that the Solar City guys are fantastic folks. But I just think that, I mean, try to give me a comparison in another marketplace, right? Like, you know, a bundled offer. Do you think Verizon does a great job of providing you cable, internet, and phone service all at the same time? And they're a huge old line company that has deep, you know, expertise in these areas. Do you think that Service Master is good at giving you true green lawn care? And, you know, like pest control and all the other things that they they sell and actually cross selling between them. I just don't think that you can show a lot of 40 year old companies who've done what you're proposing Solar City is going to do. Well, certainly these acquisitions are going to cause uh, an interesting shakeup in the downstream solar marketplace. Zep, for example, is um, a major supplier of uh, racking for for Vivint Solar, which is the second largest solar services provider. Uh, interestingly, you know, you see a lot of solar manufacturers like Trina and Yingli and Canadian Solar. They um, now have licensing agreement agreements with ZEP. So now these companies are effectively Solar City's customers, and that's kind of a dramatic change. So whether or not it works, whether or not you're right or wrong, Jigger, that ver the vertically integrated model isn't the right approach, it's certainly changing the, the customer relationship here in the solar industry. I suspect that this is only the beginning, and I think that the vertical integration trend is clearly going to continue. Yeah, and I think adding their battery to it is going to make it even, uh, even more attractive to folks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Solar City's done a couple hundred installations with uh, a battery system, and that also adds a whole other layer to this as well. Let's go, speaking of batteries and solar and integrating these technologies, let's go on to our third topic, uh, microgrids uh, and more broadly energy localization. So I suspect we're going to eventually have a, a whole show devoted to this topic, but I want to touch on a few important things currently in the news. The push to, mun to municipalize uh, utilities and uh, progress with microgrid projects. First, municipalization. Uh, there's this move underway in Germany to take back the grid from investor-owned utilities and localize the system. And this is kind of a, this push for independence is this natural evolution from the country's feed-in tariff program, which has ensured that roughly half of Germany's renewable energy is local. And now some cities are going even further uh, we see the same thing starting to brew in the U.S., most notably in Boulder, where the city is trying to split from Excel Energy and has been trying to do so for many years. 
Um, Catherine, what is your opinion on this surge in municipalization and pull toward uh, more localized, uh, more localized management of the grid? Well, it really turns everything on its head. Um, I think if if Boulder can get a fair market price from XL, you know, they'll be able to do what some of these towns in Germany have done, which is that you become a profitable entity. And those profits go back into the community rather than to the shareholders for an investor-owned utility. So I think it's pretty interesting to watch. I like the whole municipal model um, when you can do it because you take a much more holistic approach to the system rather than asset by asset. You really look at everything in at, at once. So you're looking at all of your utilities at the same time and you can do much better planning, I think, if, you, if you're looking at it as a municipal utility. Yeah. Boy, but it can be expensive up front. I mean, Boulder has to buy the grid assets from Excel and it has to pay for the tab for um, previous investments it made in, in power plants. And Excel estimates that could be like upwards of a billion dollars. And Boulder says it will cost somewhere around $300 million. But profitability doesn't come immediately. Yeah. And that's why I said the fair market price from Excel. It sort of depends on how much they have to pay. What's different about this new push toward municipalization, uh, both in Germany, throughout Europe, and in the U.S., is that people are doing it for environmental reasons now. Cities are setting targets for carbon emission reductions. They want to procure more renewable energy. And now, all of a sudden, there's this new element to municipalization. Jigger, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, well, what's weird in – I mean, what's different in Germany is that – RWE is in big trouble, I mean, financially. And so uh, they're actively trying to sell off their municipal grids um, to raise money. So, I mean, that's why it's working there. Whereas in Excel's territory, they're spending huge amounts of shareholder money that they should not be spending trying to defend themselves under, um, you know, against the Socialist Republic of Boulder. And um, <laughs> so well we'll see do you not support that municipalization effort what are you just being facetious or behind what you said well i mean i'm certainly not being facetious i mean if you've been to boulder it is a socialist republic but um but i love those guys i'm actually doing a book reading in october 29th so please come me come see me if you're living in boulder but um no it's like tacoma like they're gonna come now (laughs) (laughs) like it's like tacoma park or burlington vermont i mean there's all sorts of berkeley there's a lot of socialist republics but the thing is is that there's enough wealthy people in boulder that they're not going to give up and i think they're going to win this court case and i think they're going to actually show that it's better to have local control but i think it's going to be a long process and it's going to cost a lot of money and i think it's a good thing well interestingly uh, we had this panel discussion at the verge conference and we talked about the future of utility we had someone from SMUD and SDG&E and Chris Nelder, who we've talked about on the show, who writes about the future of utilities and, you know, Richard Capitan, who's been on this podcast. And, you know, Chris says that he thinks if investor-owned utilities don't change, we are going to see a massive push toward municipalization. And I think that, um, you know, it looks like we're sort of headed in that direction. But as we see in Boulder... Excel is spending a lot of money to prevent this. Uh, In some service territories or in some states, the utility actually has the final final say about whether a city can municipalize and break off from the utility, not the Public Utilities Commission. So there are some very real barriers to this, and I suspect that it's not just going to be this massive movement to localize the grid. It it really is a fierce on-the-ground battle uh, territory by territory. 
Yeah, and having worked for a utility for ten years myself, and you know, designing systems, I mean, they're they're very complicated to operate. Um, you know, no matter you're, they're still wires, and they're still very dangerous. So I I sort of understand too that you know you're taking a huge risk by by saying you're going to actually operate a grid. Yeah, I mean, when we had Richard Caperton on the show, I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about was not municipalization, but I think what we talked about was getting college campuses, corporate campuses, and others that will be moving to these microgrids. And I think that's what you're going to see, actually, is this rampant move in that area. And um, and that's going to precede, I think, this municipalization movement. Yeah, good segue into the second part of this conversation. So the logical next step from municipalization is the microgrid creating this self-sufficient system that can power a local community or even an individual business with little or no help from the main grid, or its grid itself? Um, we've seen a couple pilots developed in the U.S. over the last few years, um, one of the best known being the Borrego Springs microgrid in California, uh, which was developed around a community that had developed a lot of solar previously, and they d- um, put up a, a microgrid with stimulus dollars to connect those solar systems with storage uh, we've got this new one that opened up in Maryland, a uh, solar-powered microgrid at a 2,000-acre mixed-use development. Catherine, you went and visited that project. What did you find? What's your impression of what's going on there? I did. It was so exciting. Um, it's Contera Standard Solar and Solar Grid Storage that came together. Um, it's a 400-kilowatt PV canopy over a parking garage. It'll supply 20% of the energy to Contera's headquarters building. It'll also charge EVs and provide lighting, LED lighting to their parking facility. And it has a 50 kW four-hour battery storage backup, um, which is just it, it's just amazing. And one of the one of the big heroes here is Delmarva Power, which interestingly is owned by Pepco. And you know. Pepco has had some reliability issues, and these folks are really behind this. I mean, they think this is a great thing. Uh, Delmarva is also involved in uh, the Bloom facility um, that I also visited this week um, up in Delaware. And and again, um, in both cases, they talked about Pepco talked about microgrids as really the wave of the future and something that they wanted to support. Joe Rigby said that, so it was pretty exciting. And how is it interacting with the grid itself? Is it getting compensated for the electricity that it might might be releasing? Is it able to participate in energy markets or or frequency regulation markets? Is there any sort of interaction with the grid itself? I mean, it's connected, but um, right now in the energy market, there's only frequency regulation is the only way you can participate unless you do demand response. But so I, so it's not it's not right now participating in like a capacity market. What what Maryland has done though, which is really interesting, and Governor O'Malley was at this event too, is. Maryland has set a lot of policy goals. You know, they have a 20% RPS by 2020, greenhouse gas emission reduction of 25% by 2020. They have energy efficiency targets. And they have a goal of recovering 100% of their jobs that have been lost during the recession with green jobs, 100,000 green jobs. Um, And what they did with this project was they have a game changer grant program that awards funds for energy innovation. And then they say, look, if you come up with something that's a game changer, we want to give you a grant for that. And they saw this project as really one of those things. And as a result of all this, Maryland twice in a row has been named the number one enterprising state for entrepreneurs.
Entrepreneurship and Innovation by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, um, which I find really exciting that if you get your policies and your goals right, that all this innovation will follow and projects like this will be able to thrive. Do you see this as part of the ongoing municipalization effort? Are the, are the two connected? Do you imagine communities that are distance, distancing themselves from IOUs uh, taking the next logical step and becoming mostly self-sufficient? Well, I actually see this as not completely leapfrogging that to that level, but right now, you know, seeing um, data centers, um, university campuses, DOD, DOD has like 40 operating or planned microgrids out there now, you know, having more campus applications first before you see it as a municipalization. So I, I think right now, the microgrids and microgrids are complex. First of all, you have to figure out how do you define a microgrid? You know, what are all the standards that that microgrids can be organized around? Um and so it's it's pretty complex, but it's very well suited to campus style facilities. Yeah, that's right. And they've definitely been um, most present at uh, schools and universities. And well, categorization you know, is is key because you know how do you do you qualify it as a distributed energy source? Is it an independent power producer? Um, you know, something completely different that we haven't categorized. That seems to be a big uh, issue. Yeah, and some utilities are having heartburn. They're saying, look, you can either be on the grid and have this thing, you know, you're attached with a microgrid, or you can disconnect, and we never know which one you're going to do, so you still have to pay us. Well, let's just be clear about why this occurs, I mean, just from a politics standpoint. The Game Changer program was created because Pepco is so unreliable that we all forced them to create the Game Changer program at Montgomery County in D.C., to fund this, right? So that's why it exists is because of the hatred of the utility. And when you think about what's happening in Sandy or in other places, in general, the reason why people are building microgrids is not to save money, although that's a huge thing they could do. They're doing it to increase reliability because their utility sucks at providing reliability. Yeah, and that's why DOD is certainly invested in it. But I would say that, you know, while that is the case, um, Jager, that Pepco was really on board with this and with the Bloom plant that I visited yesterday, too. I mean, Del- Delmarva, uh, you know, they see this and this is this speaks to their reliability. I mean, they could solve a lot of problems if they get more of these systems. Oh, I agree with you. But all I'm saying is the reason why Pepco's there is not because they saw the light. It's because, you know, I helped organize 2,000 people against Pepco. We actually figured out a way to cancel three of their rate increases until they supported this program. Delmarva didn't support Bloom Energy until the governor of Delaware actually forced them to actually do this deal with with Bloom Energy for the plant there. So I just I love the fact that Pepco has gotten there. But they've gotten there because we forced them with an enormous stick, not because they're actually smart. So this is a sector that's still pretty small. According to the Rocky Mountain Institute, we have about 1,500 megawatts of operating microgrids in the U.S., and those are pretty much all customer-oriented small microgrids. It sounds like, Catherine, you think this is going to be a customer-driven market for some time to come come and will not be – something that's much broader, say, within the municipalization effort. Yeah, I would I definitely think that. And and then it'll catch on and they'll figure out a way to finance these, a way to organize all the standards around them and to and to build good financial constructs for them. I think it's gonna take DOD universities and a bunch of others like that, data centers, folks like that to really um to to innovate on the financial side. 
All right. Well, let's wrap up and tell our listeners something they don't know. Uh, Jigger, what do you have this week? Well, you know, I just I, I wanted to highlight something slightly different this week. There's um, there was a blow up uh, this week about um, sexual harassment suits and that kind of stuff at um, at Scientific American magazine, where there were a number of women who came forward and you know basically said that you know one of the top editors, which they didn't name, um, was was sexually harassing you know women in exchange for promoting their blogs and stuff. And you know I I do think it what's interesting to me about that is that you know is that and this is primarily in a climate change sort of environment. So what's interesting to me is that I think it's important that these issues sort of plague um, our industry just. You know, just like the industry, they they play other industries. Yeah, well, there are asses everywhere in every industry. (laughs) Catherine, how about you? Tell us something we don't know. Well, I have to tell you about somebody who is does not fall into that category, and it's it's a sad story. Um, Brad Roberts, who was the executive director of the Electricity Storage Association, and this was a volunteer position that he held for two decades. Uh, he also had a day job at SNC Electric, um, 35 years working in power systems, uh, passed away quite suddenly this week. He's been a lifetime energy storage champion, really moved that industry into a place uh, where it is now, where it moved from being a science club to being something that people are really investing in and seeing a 1.3 gigawatt by 2020 target in California. So I just wanted to, to honor him. Brad Roberts was um, a, a good friend um, as well as a colleague, and we'll really miss him. Yeah, very sad indeed. Thanks for that. So I was at the Verge San Francisco conference this week, and uh, one of the people I sat down to interview was a guy named Mike Tinsky, who's the director of Ford's vehicle electrification efforts. And one of the things we talked about was Ford's pilot program called the My Energy Product, and it's developed it around its new C-Max uh, energy plug-in hybrid. So Ford has worked on this app to talk to products like Nest's thermostat, uh, Whirlpool smart appliances, and um, a solar system from Eaton and SunPower, and of course it's plug-in hybrid. And the app tells the customer when the optimal time to charge the vehicle is, um, and it monitors time of use rates, etc., and helps the customer manage on-site power generation and consumption with all these other devices, including the vehicle. So they've only recently released it at a couple of different homes, but Tinsky said that they have already found that the system is helping reduce electricity consumption by between 50 and 60%. Um, I'm going to write a little story on this, but it's it's a pretty cool pilot, and I think it, it has a lot of potential if those results um, can be scaled. And it shows how the convergence of these devices is really accelerating and how these traditionally separate industries – in this case, a car company and the utility, they're now collaborating and potentially colliding. So really interesting stuff. And it kind of goes back to the microgrid concept as well. Okay, that's all for us this week, folks. For more information on the stories we covered, go to greentechmedia.com and we'll have some links for you. Also, follow us all on Twitter. You can find the hosts, Jigger Shah, Catherine Hamilton, and me on Twitter. And uh, I am actually using the Energy Gang Twitter handle finally to send out some stories related to the show each week. Uh, We set that up a while ago, but haven't really been using it. Um, And if you're in a following mood, make sure to follow our RSS feed, subscribe to us on iTunes, or follow us on SoundCloud. Finally, if you're in the area, come check out our live show in Washington, D.C. on November 12th. 
We will be talking East Coast Solar at the MDVCS Solar Focus event. Again, for more information on that, go to mdvcorg slash solarfocus2013. That's all for the show. Catherine Hamilton, have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Stephen and Jigger. And Jigger Shah, have a great weekend as well. Uh, you're off to Solar Power International next week, right? Yeah, I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Hey, uh, Stephen, just one last note was that on the um, MDVCA thing, they're going to set up separate tickets for people who just want to come to the the Energy Gang taping, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we're going to be taping at about 4.30 in the afternoon on the 12th, and there will be a happy hour after that. And they are going to have a separate price for people who just want to come to that. Um, they haven't sent us out the link yet, but we will post that as soon as we get it. Cool. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for being with us.